0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. COVID 19 has been and continues to be a global problem. So vaccinating everyone on the planet for COVID should be a priority for everyone. But is it? We talk about the importance of vaccinating the world, how feasible it is, and more as we check in with Dr. Joe Amon. He is a clinical professor and director of the Office of Global Health at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. Give a listen. The idea of vaccinating the world against COVID-19, it's something I've heard talked about in broad strokes and maybe focused here and there, but how important is it? How critical is it that we eventually get to this?
1: It's critical on a couple of levels. I mean, on one level, we want to vaccinate as many people as possible around the globe to save lives. On another level, we want to vaccinate people around the world to prevent the emergence of new variants of the COVID virus, uh, which will inevitably cross borders and come into the U.S.
0: How realistic is it that we can pull this off given the factors we have on the table right now?
1: Scientifically, there isn't a question that we could pull this off if we chose it to. The problem hasn't been the science as much as the willingness and the commitment and the political will to get vaccines to low-income countries that don't have their own manufacturing base um, and aren't paying the amount of money that Western countries are paying for the vaccine.
0: I've heard people talk about a lack of infrastructure in a lot of places, that we can give the vaccine, but they don't really have the mechanisms in place to be able to get the shots in arms like we are in a lot of countries. How much does that factor in?
1: You know, I've worked in very remote countries in in, um, sub-Saharan Africa. All of them have vaccination campaigns annually that reach children in extremely remote locations. People are used to vaccines. They're willing to travel, you know, to clinics and to sites where vaccines are being distributed. Childhood vaccination levels, even in extremely poor countries, are above seventy percent. I don't think the problem is really a logistical problem of getting the vaccines to everyone in in these countries. I think the problem is really a question of uh, political will. It would help, you know, if we built manufacturing capacity in low-income countries to expand the access to these vaccines. But there's still issues about uh, intellectual property rights and other things that prevent, even where there is the science, the ability to produce the vaccines and distribute it.
0: Have there been any moves made you think have been particularly helpful in helping us get to this goal? Things maybe that people don't realize how important it is or how much it moves the needle? Has, has anything been done that you applaud that helps us get us closer to this goal?
1: The most recent news is from earlier this month. The World Health Organization established a technology transfer hub in South Africa, and they've just completed making the Moderna COVID vaccine in the lab in South Africa without direct guidance from Moderna. So it was proof of concept that it could be made in a low-income country without uh, having to make it in a, you know, in a pharmaceutical lab in Europe or in the U.S. and shipped into these countries. The problem is, it's still, it's, it's not at a level of, of full-scale production yet. It's really just at a level of proof of concept. There's a lot of other places in the world too that can be that can be sites for manufacturer of vaccine, including you know India, Thailand. And those are areas that could be scaled up further.
0: How much of a challenge, specifically the mRNA vaccines that we've become so used to, the fact that they have to be held at these very, very cold temperatures? How much of a challenge is that? Because I know that was a challenge when these first came out for places in the US. Where does that rate as far as things we have to overcome?
1: Well, there is experience with just regular cold chains for vaccines in low-income countries. I think the understanding of mRNA vaccine technology has gotten kind of a little bit better, and it's been established that you could, you could use more of the regular cold chain technology and still have viable vaccines. I think there's also a number of ways in which having kind of intermediate technologies that can extend from the extra you know, cold storage for limited amounts of time to get it into the field and get it into arms is also coming into play. There's a lot of technology now too that you can monitor that the cold chain has been maintained. And so there are digital probes that will uh, indicate if the cold chain has been broken at any point. So that you're not vaccinating people with with not viable vaccine. So I think that the that initial fear that you needed to have this super cold chain on you it would be hard to do that in low income countries is is being alleviated a bit.
0: Wasn't there? I remember. I think it might have been the end of last year, early this year. The school in Texas. I think it might have been the Baylor College of Medicine had developed a vaccine that was more traditional. Wasn't mRNA and please correct me if I'm wrong, but they kind of relinquish the rights to it and, and put it on the world stage. Will that have a, a big effect? So,
1: yes, that, that was Baylor. And the scientist behind that, Dr. Peter Hotez, has been a champion for, you know, science-based approaches to COVID generally, as well as developing this vaccine and offering it to anyone sort of, here's the recipe, here's the approach. And there's been a slow take up on that. I think partly it speaks to the power of the pharmaceutical industry to kind of continue to promote their own vaccines. I think partly it's because of the lack of capacity in a lot of countries that need vaccines. The fact is the reality right now is that only something like 4% of people living in low-income countries have been fully vaccinated. And, you know, that's not going to cut it. So I think there's going to be a number of different things that have to be done simultaneously. The WHO efforts in South Africa is one, taking up the Baylor vaccine, again, technology transfer, building up the capacity for that to be manufactured locally in a lot of settings is another. And also for the pharmaceutical companies that have been making billions of dollars from the COVID vaccines to start sending more of their vaccine stock into these countries as well. One of the things that we've seen in a lot of low income countries, though, is, is that there's not always the same amount of, of morbidity and mortality, partly because the countries have a larger percentage of the population that's younger. They may have less comorbidities or, or underlying health factors. And so, what should be prioritized in a lot of those countries is vaccinating healthcare personnel, vaccinating school teachers vaccinating a segment of the population. So we don't necessarily have to get as high of a level of coverage there because there's been a combination of of infection already and natural immunity that we can augment with booster shots essentially for vaccines and ensuring that those most at risk are are protected.
0: How would you rate the job the U.S. government has done in trying to to vaccinate the world? I've heard you know, you hear press reports of donating X amount of vaccines that we bought to other countries and stuff like that. Are there other things that the government is doing to help or not really? Or are there things that we're not aware of that are helping to move the needle?
1: I don't think this has been a priority for the current administration. And I think that the model of donating vaccines is is a short-term crisis model. And the covid pandemic is out of the short-term crisis phase and we need to really start thinking about ensuring greater capacity to produce vaccines because those vaccines may need to shift in the you know in the coming year to cover different types of variants and just kind of having low-income countries be last in line with each new you know development of a vaccine is is not going to really give us the answer we want
0: if we were to really try to do this right what would be a reasonable time frame that you think we could you know quote unquote vaccinate the world how long would it take
1: well these countries a lot of them have expanded program on immunization weeks every year where they do blitzes of vaccinations they have a lot of healthcare personnel at sort of nurse, and nurse's assistant levels that can get out. You know, people are used to mobilizing for for health causes, and so I think that um, if the production side was was sorted out, the delivery side w- would happen quickly. So to me, that's that's more in the scale of you know a year than it is in a scale of a decade
0: we talked about the vaccine from Baylor. Is that something you would like to see maybe the US government really put their shoulder into? And that might be a a way they they could do it and how much the the pharmaceuticals, despite all the success, and you talk about how they've been successful and kind of keeping the focus on them. Would there be pushback there or would you not be worried about that? Or how do you think that could play out?
1: Well, the pharmaceutical industry in the US has one of the largest lobbies in Washington of any industry. So they are really looking out for their interests and they are a tough lobby to, to push back against. One of the things that comes up at the World Trade Organization are issues around intellectual property rights. And this came up you know, years ago with the need to get antiretroviral drugs for HIV into low-income countries. And so I think there's a broader set of reform that needs to happen that includes vaccines and COVID vaccines specifically, but for also a lot of essential medicines, which are you know, patent protected, and too expensive to get into the countries where they need it. That's a big fight. One of the things that I don't think should be happening is that the World Trade Organization should be in charge of public health the World Health Organization also needs to stand up and say, you know, intellectual property reform is part of what's necessary to ensure that we as a globe, as individual countries have some global health security. And I think that it would be very important for the current administration to to join in on that. There's a discussion of a pandemic treaty that all countries would sign right now And hopefully part of that is recognizing how these kinds of commercial interests really impede public health interests.
0: Do you think enough people understand the importance of getting everyone vaccinated because we struggle as a society to think big picture? We are instant gratification and we are kind of looking at what's right ahead of us. But you talked earlier about the virus keeps circulating more variants. And eventually, you know, we could hit a Yahtzee where we get a variant that everything we've done for two years doesn't matter because it evades everything. Do you think, and when I say people, I mean, decision makers understand that and the gravity of what could happen?
1: I think there's a lot of, you know, misinformation, disinformation, and lack of information at all levels. I mean, if you look at the Supreme Court, their recent ruling or their recent, yeah, the recent ruling, but also the hearing that they had about vaccine mandates, uh, you know, one of the Supreme Court justices said, well, you know, why would we mandate this vaccine when we don't mandate polio vaccine? Well, you know, there hasn't been an Indigenous case of polio in the U.S. in, you know, 20 years. So, that to me reflected a, a lack of understanding of, of the science, of, of what kind of risks we face. And I think you know, that's a sort of very human thing. You know, people are afraid to get on an airplane, but they get in their car, and the risk of getting into a car accident is much higher. Understanding the risk of an infectious disease that's a new emerging infectious disease that no one's ever seen before is is difficult. It's it's hard to know what the risk might be who to listen to but that's where leadership you know comes in and being able to speak to the american people and say this is what we know this is what we don't know these are the kinds of studies we're undertaking to try and find the answers and establishing the trust that comes from those regular communications has really been lacking kind of throughout this entire pandemic
0: two years into this pandemic a year into vaccines being available i kind of feel like from the outside, it's if we haven't gotten it by now, I see nothing that will, you know, all of a sudden pivot people to have an epiphany. Do you have a more optimistic, or do you think uh, we'll we'll kind of see the same thing?
1: So I'm both a scientist and an optimist. <laughs> Sometimes one leads me in one direction, and the other leads me in the other. But I think the optimism is is really at, at my base, and I really do think that. It takes a while. It takes a while to communicate. It takes a while to convince people. I still have conversations with people who, you know, I wouldn't label them as uh, denialists or skeptics. I just label them as someone that are still sort of trying to understand what's going on, trying to get their questions answered, trying to figure out what this means to them and their families. And I think it's important to be. Open to people struggling to, to figure this out and, and open to be talking to people that think they figured it out but are maybe listening to the wrong people telling them stuff that's scientifically kind of nonsense.
0: That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.